0: Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He said,
1: "He said I have a partner who's a sex addict and she's female, and I can't find any resources to help me. What would you advise?" Well, you know, that is a tough situation, not just for the partner, but for the addict, too, because so oftentimes there are not many all-female sex addict groups. And it really helps a partner if they know that their loved one is in a recovery group. But as you can imagine, a male partner isn't going to want his wife to go to a sex addiction group that's mostly men. And to be honest, many of the women that I know don't want their husbands who are sex addicts to be in a group with women. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but the bottom line is it's very, very scary and oftentimes triggering for everybody involved. So the next safest thing is that there are sex addict groups for females online And I told my client, I said, you know what, I am going to reach out and I'm going to ask if you are a male partner of a sex addict, please contact me if you'd be willing to do an online group because we've had some male partners of sex addicts come on and they've offered to be a part of this. I've probably got three or four people already
0: We really
1: need eight people to be a group. So if you are a male and you are in love with a sex addict, a female, then please get a hold of me and I'll do my best to hook you up um, so that you can get the support that you need because it is tough. I have to admit it's absolutely tough to find support for this very, I don't want to say unusual situation, but underdeveloped situation. Now, oftentimes, I have to tell you that it can be very difficult to deal with triggers. And I get sex addicts all day long that say, Carol, please, please, please help me figure out what I can do with um, my partner who is triggered all the time. What do I do? How do I make it work? What is the next best thing to um, being able to help when it comes to my wife or husband being triggered for no unknown reason? So I thought tonight we'd talk a little bit about that and... um, you know, I am lucky enough to be part of APSAT, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts, and we're trauma specialists. So APSAT stands for the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. In other words, we oftentimes know that, you know, if you're dealing with trauma, then you need a trauma specialist so that nobody misdiagnoses you, nobody sees you as having a problem, nobody says, oh, my gosh, you must be borderline because you can't calm it down. You need somebody who gets it. So it's important to understand why the addict may carry the pain, but the partner carries the shame. And I cannot stress that enough because once you get it, once you understand that it is the partner that carries the pain, then the partner and the addict have a responsibility to help that. Now, when professionals staff issues around reactions of partners, we find that there are really two types of reactions, so it's important to note the difference in why. And there's this really important quote, and it says, what happens in the mind of man is always reflected in the disease of the body. That was Renee Bois who wrote that. And what We, as partner specialists, know is that the body does keep score. You see, there's this traumatic stress continuum. And that stress-trauma continuum may start out with stress and coping, but it can go all the way to post-traumatic stress or complex post-traumatic stress. Historically, the field of stress and coping has focused on how we respond to and cope with normal range daily stressors. But you addicts know that when your wife or husband, when they figured out that there had been this major relationship fraction and there had been a partner betrayal that immediately – this reaction on the continuum turn to post-traumatic stress. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the exploration of the underlying neuropsychological and biological processes of each of those separate fields. What we at APSATS have to do is become specialists as to how to work with people that are in a very triggered state and have post-traumatic stress or complex post-traumatic stress. It is absolutely essential so that we can help them cope. You see, trauma organizes survival responses in the lower brain structures, and it disorganizes cognitive functions in the neocortex. So in other words, that hindbrain, which is the amygdala, it helps survival, and it says, okay, now, we're either going to fight, we're going to flee, or we're going to freeze, and that's where you've heard of fight, flight, or freeze. The midbrain, which is the limbic system, is where your feelings and emotions are, and later on, I'm going to be talking about a part of the brain that is especially sensitive to rejection. And i got to tell you, there is no worse rejection than partner betrayal. Now, the forebrain, that neocortex, which really, if you, if you went from your ears up to your forehead and back to the other ear, that would be the neocortex, and that is where your executive functioning occurs. Thinking occurs, language occurs, conscious control occurs, and that neocortex goes offline when there has been a huge trauma. So in other words, the whole coping system that a partner may have um, used in the past gets superseded by a new type of coping. And we always look at partners and say, okay, are they stuck on high or are they stuck on low? And I've got to tell you, if a numbing occurs and they disassociate, it's the number one marker for post-traumatic stress disorder. You see, fear activates the amygdala. Remember, I said that's the back of the brain. It's reptilian. It stores all sorts of information, and it goes into overdrive. And that amygdala sends messages to the hypothalamus signaling pituitary and adrenal glands to flood the bloodstream. And it floods it with chemicals like epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol. And then the stress hormones take charge in a commando-like fashion and order the body to shut down. And the body shuts down these non-emergent systems, including digestive and immune systems. And what we know to be true is that when that happens, my goodness, um, the partner has trouble functioning. And, you know, when when the... partner has trouble functioning, as I indicated, they're stuck on high, and that is when they'll experience rage and hyperactivity and hypervigilance and anxiety, panic, and then they experience physical symptoms like tachycardia, tachynessia, dyspnea, muscular tension. They hyper startle. They get hot flashes. Their body and their mind to totally feel out of control. And then many partners go straight to this place, and that's why they become violent. You know, they're smacking their addict around. They're kicking them down the stairs. They are so stuck on high. They're doing things they have never, ever, ever done before. Now, if they aren't stuck on high... They may be dealing with that normal range of emotion, but more than likely they're stuck on low. And when they're stuck on low, they're, you know, they're sleeping all the time, they're constipated, they're sluggish, um, they have muscle weakness, they're depressed, they're exhausted, they're hopeless, they feel helpless, and they just feel numb. So one of the things we know from post-traumatic stress is that the body remembers what the mind forgets. So when discovery has occurred and a partner finds out horrible things about their husband or wife and you know, is exposed to all the indiscretions, They experience emotions, and these emotions are intricately an experience of the body. Van Derber says the body reveals what the lips cannot say, and the body bears the burden. So you may say to yourself, what the heck is going on? Why is it? that my wife or husband is out of control. I mean, I know that I've really hurt my partner, but they're a different person. They're not functioning. They're acting different. They're not eating. They're not sleeping. They want me to stay up. They want to argue. They want to ask questions. They become Columbo. They want to investigate. Well, unfortunately... What happens when somebody has been horribly, horribly triggered is that their parasympathetic and sympathetic system goes offline, too. You know, the parasympathetic part of the body is that part of the brain, brain that goes into all the other organs And trauma, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress affects the parasympathetic part of the body. You know that is basically your heart, your bronchia, uh, your gallbladder, your rectum, and then the sympathetic part of your body. Well, it inhibits sal- salivation. It relaxes the bronchi accelerates the heart, inhibits digestive activity, stimulates glucose. I mean, really, both the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system affects almost every part of the body. And it's not unusual for us to meet with partners that have no digestive ability They don't have an appetite. They can't digest anything. Um, They're either constipated or they have diarrhea. I mean, they're really experiencing a lot of physiological stress. And wow, when they experience a lot of physical and physiological stress things just start to shut down. You know, what we know is that stress really affects the mind and the body. There's this physical and emotional pain processed by a single neural system. And interestingly enough, this single neural system affects the insula. And the insula is in the middle of the brain and it is that part of the brain that processes emotional pain and rejection. And so, unfortunately, when a partner has experienced the worst betrayal ever, that part of the anterior insula and anterior cingulate cortex has a lot of difficulty dealing with, the feelings associated with it. And wow, that really means that the rejection that a partner feels is exacerbated a hundredfold. So now what we know is that that partner is experiencing huge floodings of emotions and producing unbelievable chemical cocktails that create rage, disgust, terror, and joy. You see, there's this thing called the HPA. It's the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis. And when there are massive fluctuations in that axis, there's also strong emotions that are accompanied with that. Now the HPA manages the interaction between the nervous and the endocrine systems. It affects almost every organ and tissue in the body, including the brain, and it's involved in the neurobiology of mood disorders, trauma responses, and many physical illnesses. It regulates body temperature, digestion, immune system, tissue function, mood, sexuality, and energy usage. And the sympathetic adrenal medullary system is SAM. And SAM also, um, when it's affected, it also creates a flooding of emotion. And that means when that is affected, it prepares the body for massive energy output for that fight, flight, or freeze response. It is the survival system. That chemical cocktail helps to keep people safe. And it releases hormones that stimulate the sympathetic nervous system. Does that make sense? So you got all this stuff going on. And wow, that is and can make lots of cellular changes in the body. So, you know, a partner is not just having difficulty with her ability to regulate her emotions. She also is having difficulty with the bodily changes that are occurring as a result of the stress. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know that these chemicals being produced are affecting almost every organ and tissue in her body, she thinks she's sick to her stomach because she's heard the worst information ever. She doesn't know that the parasympathetic nervous system is shutting down her digestive tract. She doesn't know that it's keeping her in survival mode, so it's not wanting her to expend very much energy at all so that she can save it for the horrible um, next few days, weeks, months, and perhaps even years that reveal more and more sexual addiction. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is if you're a sex addict and you you're keeping secrets and you're not sharing with your partner what needs to be shared, she will oftentimes feel the need to become Columbo and search for answers and inquire about situations I always say these women, even if they're stuck on high, they really do have a good sense of intuition. And so all of a sudden, they'll wake up in the middle of the night and they'll go, Hey, you know, you were gone that first Saturday after New Year's, and I couldn't get a hold of you. You know, were you rendezvousing with a prostitute? Were you with an escort? Were you with your girlfriend? were you with an affair partner? And they keep probing and pushing and really doing their best to figure out what in the heck is going on. And when that occurs, staggered disclosures typically follow. And that means that, you know, as an addict you get worn down and at first she deny, 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 deny. The partner feels crazy. But then all of a sudden, a seed of truth occurs. You're being honest partially. And when they feel that sense of honesty, they go for the deep dive to figure out what else is going on. And when they do that, staggered disclosures do appear and further traumatize the partner but I know it's like she's asked for it but she's asked for it because she feels like she's got to put the puzzle pieces together and then boy there is all this um, effect on the partner's mind what she thought she knew to be true What she now is learning to be true and trying to make sense of that. And on her body. If the body keeps score, she will be filing information in her body that she doesn't even know she's filed. And then it will, from time to time, motivate her to get sick, to feel like she's having a nervous breakdown. To get angry, to feel insecure. I mean, this can be terribly, terribly difficult. So, what do you do if you are an addict that wants to make things better? Well, it's interesting because there are lots of things you can do. I mean, undoubtedly. What is most important is that you get absolutely honest with your partner. But you should do it within a safe context. Both of you should be in therapy with specialists. An addict should be in in therapy with a certified sexual addiction therapist or an APSATS therapist that's trained to work with partners and addicts. And definitely the partner needs to be with a specialist who understands partner trauma. And then a formal disclosure should occur if the partner wants that. This is up to the partner to decide, do I want this? And if they do, this process can take Four to six weeks to really be properly organized. You know, the addict should go over a timeline that starts from the time of uh, his sexual addiction, preoccupation, maybe that was even at age 10 when he found his first Playboy, or 12 when he found his father's first Internet porn, or 9 when his friend sent him his first internet web link to pornography. Or as you well know, maybe the sexual preoccupation occurred when trauma occurred for the addict. Maybe he was molested or exploited. Maybe he experienced physical and verbal abuse and somehow he learned that if he pleasured himself through self-soothing, it made his worries and the trauma feel better. It took him away from his current day situation. It numbed him. It allowed him to go into fantasy. So, you know, that's where the disclosure starts, and then it goes all the way into the present. And I mean this thing, when an addict writes out his timeline and answers all the questions, that his partner has asked him, it can be 10, 15, 20, 25 pages long. So you have to leave lots and lots of time for the disclosure. And then the partner gets to decide, did you answer everything I wanted to know? And she asks additional questions because oftentimes she's triggered to want some more information. And then... When it's all done, it's important for the partner to give the addict two, three, four, or five um, polygraph questions that a polygrapher is going to be asking. One of them might be, did you tell the entire truth during the disclosure? Yes or no? Did you minimize anything with the disclosure? Yes or no? No. To the best of your ability, did you give all the facts that you possibly could have in the disclosure, yes or no? And maybe there will be some really intense questions like, have you ever touched our children in an inappropriate and sexual way? Yes or no? Um, Maybe it will be something familial like, have you ever approached my sister sexually? yes or no. So they get the questions down. He answers, or she, depending on who the addict is. And then, as a result, what ends up transpiring is that, ideally, the polygraph test should have already been scheduled for the very next day. Now, it's often been my experience that I shouldn't say often, but at least in 20% 20 of the cases, the addict is honest. Um, I shouldn't say that. I I don't even know why I said it. In 20% of the cases, the addict thinks he's being honest, and then he realizes that there was more information he should have shared or that he wasn't 100% honest. And on occasion, they out and out lie. And they come to grips with that anywhere from 2 to 10 hours after the disclosure. And so they can go back to the partner. It's not what we recommend, but they can say, you know what, I wasn't totally honest. I did not tell you that I left your sister um, a sexual note. Or I didn't tell you that I had some fantasies about your daughter, my stepdaughter. Or I didn't tell you that I had participated in a sexual activity with a male. And so then, when that occurs, the partner gets to decide how she's going to change the questions. She usually runs it by me, and then I run it by the polygrapher. And we really try to get a clean... Disclosure. And of course, the polygraph test substantiates that. Okay. When that disclosure has occurred, hopefully we call it stopping the bleeding, the trauma has been lessened. You know, it hurts, definitely, but when I say the trauma has been lessened, What I mean is that there is some hope for the partner that everything is out in the open and she'll stop getting land blasted by additional information and, again, staggered disclosure. And she can begin to build trust. And he can feel... The uh, the addict can feel really good about the fact that he has told her everything. And when he's told her everything, then he's holding no more secrets, and that is really important, too. And so, again, you're looking for ways to calm down the partner's brain, to deactivate it, and once that formal process has occurred, then we can do some early recovery work for couples and see if we can improve basic communication skills and, and begin to build a little bit of trust. Now that means we go into reflective listening. We go into empathy formulas. I call it the AVR, when you acknowledge what your partner is going through, when you validate his or her feelings, and when you reassure the person that you have their back. Um, We have some really skilled clinicians at APSAT that have come up with some trigger-busting formulas that are really helpful. And they really make the client, the addict and the partner, feel like they're working together to improve the trauma that has occurred. And when that process gets started, my experience is partners and addicts want to stay together. They want to make it through the crisis. They want to build stronger relationships The addict wants to right the wrong, and the partner wants to develop a relationship she can trust in. And so when that has begun, hope has gotten started, and that's what we look for. You know, maybe you as a couple will need some intensive work. You might have to go to some intensive retreats or a workshop or um, a curcio Maybe you take a Mago therapy. Um, you go to the John Gottman Institute. Um, you go through emotion focused therapy with Sue Johnson. We have a lot of trained therapists who provide intensives through ITAP, IITAP, or APSETS, APSATS, that know exactly what they're doing. So if there's a specific intensive, a specific retreat, a specific weekend you want, I encourage you to let me know what that is. Well, those are the cliff notes to how you help somebody with triggers. The good news is I've seen couples get stronger as a result. The bad news is it takes a lot of work, and it takes some time. But more than likely, the relationship is worth it. If you've got two people willing to do the hard work to reform or form for the first time attachments that are secure and healthy, So I'm Carol, the coach, and I am so happy to be with you tonight. And I just gave you some um, neurobiological and psychological information that will help you understand why a partner can be so activated and what to do about it. Now, next week, I've got some exciting stuff. Rob Weiss and Marnie Free are going to be talking about out of the doghouse, the Christian approach. So I look forward to seeing you next week. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Have a great week.